Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assisted reproductive technology. And I do want to acknowledge this time that I get that our our name, our title, I Want to Put a Baby in You, could be considered offensive, which I'm learning more what? and more. But it's, it's really meant to be funny and, you know. It is of, supposed to be funny. Although there's so much this area that is serious and heartbreaking and, you know, miracle making we do like to to try to have a sense of humor as we as we go through that journey together but but who are you on Uh, this journey so i am ellen trackman and i'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law and who who are you i I don't know today is this like is this like a life question who am i oh wait okay fine I will start with okay. the basics of what with I do the, know. With the dementia, we'll remind you who you are again and who we are. <laughs> uh, I am Jennifer White, and I own a surrogacy matching agency. And yeah, so together we are actually sisters even. And Ooh. this is like a weird journey for us together because, you know, we we got to deal with family all day, every day, and make families all days, every day. It's pretty awesome, <laughs> quite mm-hmm. honestly. Um, since you just called me old... Um, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I heard it. What, how old I don't you think could I said be? you were old. I think I just said you had dementia, which can, can uh, hit at any time, really. Okay. I, I will take that that was not your normal jibe of usually calling me old. Uh, <laughs> you just took a different tactic towards mm-hmm. it, right? <laughs> no, again, it can hit at any time, really. You can be okay. young and have dementia. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you could be any age, what, what age would you want to be at for life? Um, I it's gotta be somewhere in my twenties, probably like maybe mid twenties, where you can still rent a car without being charged extra, but your <laughs> body hasn't fallen started falling apart yet. I guess I don't, I don't know. That's um, funny. I mean, it's funny because I always feel like you can't you can't win. Like you're always like too young, according to some people, or too old, or to do whatever it is you want to do. But I've definitely- I would have picked 35 for that oh, same reason that like, okay, I really liked the amount of wisdom I had by that time, but I still felt, you know, very young um, yeah. and yeah. had a lot of energy. So I, I liked 35. I think I'd, I think I'd be 35 forever if I was allowed to choose. That's pretty good. I like it. Um, I do think it's funny with age, like I'll go back, we were visiting my college campus and I was like, why are they all 12? It's so, oh, goodness you know, everyone, yeah, everyone just no, looks right. younger. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of which though, yes. we are interviewing Dr. Daniel Scora today, who also looks like the Doogie Hauser of reproductive endocrinologists. He is maybe extraordinarily he was, young looking. Maybe he was given that option where he was he's actually oh. like 70 and he's like, no, I would like to be stuck at 25 looking, you know. We we should have asked him that on the interview. It's too bad. Right. So uh, everybody will have to just listen and see if he admits how old he really is. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Daniel Scora to the show. Thank you, doctor, for joining us. Happy to be here. <laughs> So I thought we would start by getting to know you a little bit. Do you want to tell us about your your background and what led you to this area of medicine? Sure. Um, you know, I was not one of those people who knew for sure they wanted to go into medicine to begin with, but 
during college, uh, I kind of figured out that I liked science and I liked helping people. So that led me into medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, what What did you think you wanted to do before that? When I started college, I thought I was going to be a stock lawyer, bro- a stockbroker, a stockbroker. Oh, wow. Okay. Like 50, 50% of my class at Princeton went into some form of financial in New York. So oh, wow. uh, it's a really common thing out of Princeton. But then actually in college, I never even took an economics course. So um, (laughs) I kind of, you know, steered clear of that. I majored in psychology and neuroscience, and I thought Mm -hmm. that I was going to be a neurosurgeon, actually. And Mm. then in medical school, I met neurosurgeons, and I did not like them. And I decided that (laughs) that was not... um, (laughs) You could be the intensity with neurosurgeons, yeah. Yeah. You could be like the one likable one, though. You could just... But, you know, I, I didn't think that I would want to spend seven years of residency with people that I really didn't like very much. Mm. Um, so, you know, I kind of was one of those wandering people. I thought for a while I was going to be a cardiologist maybe or, you know, uh, what else did I think I may be doing? But then I finally, at the end of my third year, I ended up doing my OB rotation and I really, really loved OB. I loved OBGYN. Are they most likable? Are they the most likable of all doctors? Um how can I answer this politically correct? Uh, so in creating controversy right here, (laughs) OBGYN residency is a very, very intense residency and it can bring out the worst in some people and the best in some people. So, you know, OB residents in general have um, a pretty bad reputation of being pretty malignant, but luckily for me, luckily for me, my OB rotation, I did at a private hospital because I didn't think I was going to like OB. So I did at a private hospital and the people who deliver babies, they're actually family medicine residents. So I was working mostly with private practice doctors and family family medicine residents. So I actually got like a real taste of what it was actually like to be an OBGYN. OBGYN residency is nothing like what it's like being a regular OBGYN because you're doing surgery all day as a resident. You're delivering babies all day. When reality, when you're an OBGYN, you are spending your entire day almost every day in the clinic, right? So um, it's a very different than reality. So I kind of got a real feeling of what it was like to be an OBGYN and I loved it. I love the variety of stuff I got to do. I love the patient population. I love delivering babies. So then I got into residency. I was at George Washington University in uh, Washington, D.C. for residency, um, which is a large program. Uh, We uh, deliver thousands of babies a year. and with ten other, with nine other residents in my class, so there were forty of us total. So it was a pretty large residency, um, and I grew to love um, infertility. Um, and so, and I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand this, and I would love if you could explain like the the way, kind of the path. And I think you're already going yeah. down this this of like that. So most reproductive endocrinologists they start off as I mean, so the beginning of their training is as an OB. Tell me how that kind of dovetails into being a reproductive endocrinologist. So all reproductive endocrinologists did an OB residency in America. Mm. Um, There are some uh, physicians who do infertility practice around the country who are not board certified reproductive endocrinologists, and they did not either do a fellowship or a residency. So the normal path is you do a residency in OBGYN for four years, and then you do a supplemental three-year reproductive endocrinology fellowship after that. Okay. So just like every cardiologist did an internal medicine residency for three years, then they did their fellowship in cardiology. It's the same thing for infertility. Okay. 
That's really so, how have you done that? Because I was commenting to Jen on your picture that I assume that you're 21. Is that? Yeah, that's what most patients, <laughs> that's what most, most patients assume the same thing. But luckily, yeah. I have really good genes. Oh. And I'm not as young as I look, which um, yeah. uh, is a good thing and a bad thing because sometimes. Right. Uh, Patients don't necessarily trust someone who looks like they're 21, like you said. But <laughs> trust me, I have been through the ringer, and uh, uh, a good skincare regimen is what I was going to ask. Is there like a facial cream that you recommend that we could? All- no, when I turned 30, I started using SPF, but that's about it. Every day. <laughs> Um, but that's about it. So, um, yeah, so OBGYN residency, I kind of fell in love with infertility. Um, I really drew me to infertility was a couple of things. First of all, the patient population, a lot of people would be like, especially medical school, I can't imagine working with infertility patients. They are really demanding and high stress, et cetera. They really demand a lot from you. But to me, what I love about infertility patients is there's a reason that they're like that. The reason is that they're very motivated. They're very Mm -hmm. motivated towards a goal. A lot of different kinds of medicine, your patients are kind of working almost against you. Like stop smoking, they don't stop smoking. Lose 20 pounds, (laughs) they don't lose any weight or they gain weight, you know? So what Mm -hmm. I love about this is that you're on a team with your patients working together towards a goal that's a very real goal, right? And I like that kind of team atmosphere of working closely with my patients. And you're working Mm -hmm. very intensely with your patients for a short amount of time too, which is nice. Um, The other thing that I love about infertility practice in general and reproductive endocrine is that the the practice is changing constantly. Yeah, for sure. From 20 years ago to 10 years ago to now, the practice of infertility treatment has changed dramatically. You wouldn't even recognize it from 20 years ago to now. It's amazing the advances that happen in science, you know, even egg freezing, which now is possible and is we have good results with 10 years ago, we couldn't really do, right. um, you know, and then, you know, getting into kind of ethical questionable type things with CRISPR, which I don't know if you guys have talked about yeah. that at all in the future. We, about gene, we haven't gene really editing. talked about it, but yeah, gene editing. Mm-hmm. Gene editing of embryos, I'm sure is, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, that's what's going to be talked about a lot. I, the ethics of that. I was going to ask you what you thought was next. So that was interesting. That you- that's probably what's next is mm-hmm. either, you know, turning a mouth cell into an egg, which I, I think- I've I was, seen this yeah, I was at a conference okay. over the weekend and I just, they were just talking about that at that conference yeah. too. So yeah. Yeah. Stem cells into egg into eggs is probably in the next 10, 15, 20 years, as well as gene editing, I think is going to be a Pandora's box, if you will. And we're- and, you know, in America, we're really trying to be very deliberate on the way that we're going to start doing that. I know in China, they've already supposedly edited um, a couple of embryos to splice in the gene that allows for resistance to HIV. Um, oh. That was about six months ago that those babies were born. So, Interesting. Um, you know, wow. we have a much more stringent criteria when it comes to What is the ethics of testing of- for that? Like. Well, that's, oh, you know, those yeah. are things that are being discussed in our governing body. And, you right. know, it's very... Because you, you, you can imagine our world turning into Gattaca in a way, right? From the movie course, back in the yeah. in the mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to be very careful and deliberate about what we decide we're going to do. Wow. So those are the main reasons I went into infertility. Um, and I'm very happy with my choice. I get to do what I love every day, which is great. Yeah. So tell us about your current position and your clinic where you are now. So I joined a private practice um, in uh, Dallas, Texas, um, called Fertility Specialists of Texas. Um, the how's, your, partner, how's your accent coming? Are you working on it? Uh, well, I grew up in New Orleans, oh, so okay. I did not 
But oh, even yeah. the, even so, my parents are both from Connecticut originally, so I made a very strict point of not getting a Southern <laughs> accent. So uh, I think that my Northeastern accent gives me a little bit of gravitas down here. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Oh. But, mm-hmm. um, no, if it's British, maybe. Have you tried that? Uh, yeah, that's probably true. I say, we as parents I, don't always control those accents. I lived in, in London true. and my child <laughs> came back with a British accent. So <laughs> it didn't matter how awesome. Northern we sounded. <laughs> Yeah. So sometimes I'll throw a y'all in there every once in a while, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the founding partner of Fertility Specialist Texas is Dr. Gerald Goldstein, and he actually went to the same fellowship in Vermont that I did. Oh. So I met him through that. I came down and interviewed my older brother and his family with his uh, two sons live here in Dallas. So that kind of was a draw for me as well. Mm. Um, and so that's how I ended up down here. And I've been working here for almost a year now. Oh, great. And are you loving it? I am. I'm loving, I'm loving my practice. I'm loving the patients that I'm treating here. And I'm really, really enjoying Dallas. I was in, you know, my fellowship was in uh, Vermont at the, in Burlington at the university of Vermont. And I'm definitely more of a city boy and I missed being in a big city. And so I'm really Mm. happy to be back in a big city. (laughs) So tell us, do you have certain patients from a certain demographic or is it a lot of different kinds of cases you're working on? What are you seeing these days? I'm seeing a lot of different things. So I speak Spanish. So I do tend to see That's a right. lot of Spanish speaking patients here in Dallas. Um, I'm the only one in my practice that actually speaks Spanish. So um, it definitely makes it easier to, to not have to go through an interpreter or anything like that, just to be able to talk to patients. Um, I see a lot of just general infertility. And then I've been ramping up my uh, same-sex couples as well. Um, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community myself, so I've really been pushing into the, you know, men having babies um, arena as well as I I treat a lot of lesbians as well in Dallas because the Dallas office tends to get a lot of those couples as well. So Mm -hmm. we have offices in all over the uh, DFW area. So I took over the Dallas um, office in the, in the city. Um. Should we dive into the questions, like ask your doctor yeah. questions? Okay. Sure. Um, so let so we we solicited for some questions that people that people wanted to ask their doctors, but often feel like they forgot in the appointment. And so one question to start: What is the difference between PGS, PGD, and CCS? And these are all kind of forms of testing an embryo. All right. So we're getting right into the very science part. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. no. You have to speak to like a first grade level, though. No, like, right. I will. Don't worry. <laughs> I will. Don't worry. Okay. So P- you said PGS, PGD, and CCS. And right? any other acronyms you want to yes. make up okay. and go in there. So okay. now we look at the entire chromosome. We, um, we, uh, I don't, obviously I don't do this, but are uh, the genetics companies generally that we send the samples to most um, practices around the country send out their samples for genetic analysis. They do, um, they look at the entire, every chromosome, every piece of DNA. Um, whereas in the past they would, they would do like a kind of a scattershot look at all the DNA, which was a little less accurate. So now what's the difference between PGS also known as PGTA. That's the new terminology oh. that ASRM wants us to start using. PGTA, which, okay. Yes, PGTA, which um, totally, totally so, notes here. <laughs> pre-implantation mm-hmm. genetic testing dash aneuploidy. Okay. Oh, I was like, what's A? Okay, aneuploidy. Yeah. Previously known as PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening. Okay, we're going to start using PGTA to make sure that we are so on top of things. Yeah, wow. It's one of those things. They they wanted to they wanted to rename PCOS, and I think there's a lot of pushback. There's always trying to rename something. Oh, what are they re- what are they renaming PCOS? 
I don't remember. Oh. Some <laughs> it didn't take. Huh? <laughs> it didn't really take. Yeah, they do these things often. We do too. Um, just to be fair, like we we retain traditional surrogacy, genetic surrogacy, genetic surrogacy. So right. We're working on. We we'd like to change up too. Yeah, I've actually been surprised that the you know that companies are still co- calling themselves surrogacy companies versus gestational carrier companies or something like that because ah, the definitions of those have changed so much. Over but I feel months. like that actually surrogacy has just become like the normal word for gestational surrogacy or gestational carrier arrangements. Yeah. And so I feel like it's kind of gone the other way where we've gone back to surrogacy now. Cause that's, just- that's interesting because like when, when we do our training, we learn that surrogacy has a very specific meaning, meaning that someone donates their eggs and carries their own embryo uh-huh. is what our like kind of medical interpretation of the word surrogacy means, which is why I always like check myself and use gestational carrier because it's a very I, different. That's what but, it means based on who, who decided that. Um, I think we've rewritten it now. <laughs> maybe. I, I believe you. I, know, I believe I feel the same. <laughs> I, I remember early on calling a clinic and asking a question about surrogacy. And I got like this very offended, like we don't do surrogacy because they didn't do traditional or genetic surrogacy. Exactly. But I, exactly. I definitely feel like I've moved back. Like I had tried to say carrier and I just kind of moved back to surrogacy because now everyone can understand surrogacy is a gestational carrier arrangement. Yeah, because genetic surrogacy doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, so, so rare. That's probably why. So, but okay. well, so PGTA. Back to our PGTA. So on day five, so we're kind of skipping ahead all the way through IVF. You have a blast assist on day five. That's after the embryo has been created. On the day five of that embryo creation, the embryologist uses a laser to cut a hole, a small hole in the outside of the embryo to take a sample of the placental cells, the cells that would become the placenta. The cells that become the baby are not touched, okay? Those cells are sent off for genetic That's analysis. good. I was worried you were going for like an eye cell or something. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> we, stay, we stay as far away from the inner cell mass, which are the cells that become the baby, and only take out some of the trophectoderm, which are the cells that become the placenta. Those are sent off for genetic Genetic analysis and what PGS or PGTA is is um, looking at the number of chromosomes and the complement of those chromosomes in that sample. Okay, so things like Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, other chromosomal additions or deletions that can lead to miscarriage are what we're looking for. Okay, so we're looking for a chromosomally normal embryo. That is what the information we get. We only we don't get to, with a PGT or PGS. We don't know anything about specific genes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Only the way that the and chromosomes. That's look what and I the was going to ask. Correct. Yeah, it was how specific yeah. that because I I mean like so I I'll totally as we get going through this like I'm going to embarrass my poor teenage daughter. My my <laughs> daughter is missing part of her fifth chromosome, and she is yeah. perfectly functional. She is a great human being. You know, she's going to go on live a wonderful life. It doesn't affect her. But yeah. but I think that she also will eventually need to go through IVF and have that testing to make sure yeah. she doesn't pass it on to a future yeah. child. And so I was wondering yeah. how specific is that so that we would know. So that would not. find that for her because she's missing a portion, right? So right. Okay. that is something that is seen. Okay. Um, but uh, the the other thing you can learn from PGT, PG, uh, terms, PGTA, 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 yes, PGTA, is if it is a female or a male embryo. So that's the other piece of information you can get from that. Some clinics will allow you to select based on sex and some. Mm. And what's, what's, can I ask, what's your policy? Cause I, I feel like we've seen a shift where it used to be the clinics wouldn't even tell their patients about the, the sex of the embryo. And now they've kind of moved towards telling them and allowing that decision. Oh yeah. We, we do allow for it, you know, um, 
generally it's, it's, it's not even on case by case. You know, most patients who come in asking for sex selection is because they have three girls, they want a boy or three boys, mm-hmm. they want a girl. Family it's not because, yeah, it's mostly for family balancing. I would say it's most of the time. Sometimes it is for the first child. They're like, oh, I have a girl and a boy embryo. Well, let's just do the male first and then we'll do the female later. Um, you know, I haven't come across any like really ethically terrible things yet when it comes to that mm-hmm. my first my uh, fellowship program in vermont they did not allow for sex selection so you know it's very practice by practice mm-hmm. canada does it's illegal in canada and in a lot of countries it is illegal right. so that's you know i know a lot of people when i go to these men having babies conferences um the canadian companies are there um it's important that if you if that's something that's important to you as a as someone who's going to u- use a gestational carrier etc that you know that that's not allowed in Canada. So um, if that's important to you. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Then the other part of this question was PGD. PGD. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was talking about the same thing. Okay. Go ahead. So PGD is not the same thing. So PGD is, it it is done the same way, the same kind of sampling of the embryo, but PGD um, is looking for specific diseases. So let's say if you were a carrier for Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis or something like that, or both partners were carriers for a disease, you can do this test. They look specifically for that disease in the genome, and then they can discard embryos that are affected by that disease. But you have to know what disease you're looking for. They don't just like wait. Correct. So either people have done, you know, general genetic um, testing. Like we, I offer all my new fertility patients, um, expanded carrier screening, um, and then they find accidentally, or someone knows, like, let's say a man comes in with no sperm on ejaculate, uh, the reason could be because they are a cystic fibrosis carrier that can cause that problem. So then we test the woman, et cetera, and and that's a reason to do PGD as well. Or rare autosomal dominant, which means uh, something that one person can pass on, one set of genes that causes the problem, like... um, kidney, uh, polycystic kidneys, uh, that can be autosomal dominant. Um, you can select an embryo that does not have that, that does not have that chromosome from that parent. And do you, if you find that it is positive for diagnosed with some certain condition and they only have one embryo, do you permit the transfer or does it depend on what it is? So for, I've heard this story, this new story about a couple that were deaf, for example, and they wanted to choose for that. How do you handle that? That's difficult. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, most people are doing it for a reason. I, you know, I remember when that story came out about the deaf couple as well. Um, And that is definitely an ethically precarious position. You know, generally what most practices will do is they will, especially if they're in an academic setting, they will refer the case to the ethics committee of the hospital Mm -hmm. uh, before even the IVF is done. Because I'm sure with those deaf patients, they probably told the physicians at first um, that they wanted to do that, right? So you can um, get an ethics um, consult in a hospital if you want. When you're in private practice, it's a little bit more difficult. Generally, what we do whenever we have something that's a little morally or ethically, not necessarily questionable, but on the edge, um, we will get all together and discuss it and come up with a group consensus. Mm -hmm. But um, Mm -hmm. our governing body, ASRM, has a lot of guidelines, et cetera, ethical guidelines around these sorts of things. So we often will fall back on that. 
to kind of guide our decisions as well. And what about mosaic embryos too? So we've been dealing, oh, we've a, been seeing yeah, that a, a big, lot. Really. That is a big area of the PGT arena. That is a big, big area of controversy as right, well. Right, right. Um, and can you explain what, yes. what they are and why? Yeah. So, so, okay. So again, when we were doing the blastocyst biopsy, we're taking five, seven cells from the blastocyst, okay? And the way that the genetic analysis is done is they look at each individual cell and its genetic components, right? But each cell, one cell out of those seven might be abnormal. Two out of those seven might be abnormal. So they give us a profile based upon the, the percent normal, and we kind of come up with um, a cutoff where we say, okay, this is a normal embryo because it has less than 20% abnormal cells. And that cutoff changes um, from clinic to clinic. This is getting into the real nitty gritty. Wow, I didn't even know that that Most cutoff pa- could change from clinic to clinic. That's yeah, really interesting. It does. It, it changes from company to company and clinic to clinic. So, mm-hmm. you know, some, some clinics won't transfer any mosaic embryos at all. Mm-hmm. Some will give the option of transferring mosaic embryos to patients because the theory behind kind of the mosaic embryo being normal is that, the way that the embryo, the baby part of the blastocyst is ejecting cells that are abnormal and sending those out to become the placenta, okay? So the theory is, is that even though there might be abnormal cells outside of that inner cell mass, the inner cell mass might be normal, but we don't do biopsying on that inner cell mass because that's dangerous. So um, it's certainly not perfect and we can't test for everything, obviously. So, you know... um, it's definitely a decision that's made between um, a genetic counselor generally and uh, the patient and the physician as well. Mm-hmm. But if you want to read about it, you can look <laughs> the last like three years of fertility and sterility, which is our journal uh, for reproductive medicine. This is like the hot topic every year at really? our conference, our major conference. This is the hot topic, mosaicism, ever since PGT became popular. This has become a very, very big topic. Okay, we'll link to it in the, uh, on the website so people can, can go and read. Perfect. Fertility yeah. and sterility, which sounds like a lot of it's way above my like <laughs> PhD kind of genetics oh. level of knowledge, um, but uh, and probably above most people's knowledge to be honest. But it is a very interesting kind of topic that uh, is important, but um, the research is still developing. Yeah. Okay. Well, to back out some, when someone first thinks they might going be going through infertility. What are the first kind of steps or advice that you would say to take or to consider? Okay. So the definite, well, let's start with the definition of infertility, okay? Definition of infertility is having um, regular intercourse uh, if you're over the age of 35 for six months, under the age of 35 for a year, and not becoming pregnant, okay? So and if you are in a- Interesting. Yeah, so this, I think you're going there, but if you're in a same-sex couple- that's still, there's no like exclusion to that definition, even though- As far no, as insurance companies Correct. Are, that, yeah. can be, that can be difficult for insurance companies mm-hmm. for yeah. same-sex couples, yes. Um, you know, that's very dependent on the, on the uh, insurance company, but yes. So for same-sex couples, most of them do not meet the um, diagnosis of infertility, right? So technically, yes, they have male infertility if you're a same-sex female couple, um, uh, because- 
there's no there's no sperm, mm-hmm. right? So, um, right. but most insurance companies will not accept that diagnosis oh. for that situation. So, uh, but for a heterosexual couple, it is six months under above the age of thirty five and a year under the age of thirty five of trying to get pregnant. If we don't have a pregnancy by that time, I recommend at the very least going to see an OBGYN um, or a fertility specialist at that point. You know, it, it depends on your age. If you're, you know, if you're 25, that's very different than if you're 38, 39. So um, things become more critical as we get closer to that kind of 40 age group. And then when they get to that point and they're trying to figure out who to go to, if they're thinking about seeing a fertility clinic, how do they, how do they assess who to go to? It's like, how would to that's, go to you? What is your big advice on that one? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> difficult, you know, cause every patient is very different. A lot of people will ask their OBGYNs for recommendation. Um, I rec- you know, the way that I look for doctors, I, you know, I look online reviews. You have to be very, very careful with, because just like with any, like a restaurant review or anything, the people who are really happy review, the people who are really unhappy review. And when you're dealing with something like pregnancy and IVF, et cetera, where the percentages are not a hundred percent or even close, you're going to have a lot of people who are upset because they didn't get pregnant. Right. So reviews I would take with a grain of salt. I think the, the most important data to look at, if especially if you're knowing you're going to go straight to IVF, is to look at the SART uh, data for each clinic. Okay, SART is our governing body that controls and uh, publishes the uh, pregnancy rates and live birth rates of every clinic based on their IVF outcomes. Um, if, the pa- if the clinic you're looking at is within kind of the realm of the national average, that's good. If they're above, even better. Um, but people can play with those numbers also to be better than we are. We see that sometimes. Yeah, just yeah. even some some clinics we've seen self-select. You know, the better cases. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Also, even if yeah. they take gestational carriers, you know, those are still lumped Correct. into that same pot as well. And yeah. You know, yeah. so when I when I talk with my patients who are using a gestational carrier, I use very specific IVF data for our gestational carrier mm-hmm. um, population. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so I show them exactly like I show them our infertility population, then I show a gestational carrier population and what our results are based upon PGTA versus not, etc. But that doesn't that, that know, doesn't show up on SART, right? Because those, those aren't categories for SART. To differentiate that. Yeah. So you have to ask directly. SART, yeah, SART is a little bit different. Most people, most patients don't look at the SART database themselves. They just look at whatever the cl- the clinic has on their website. Um uh, what else? Make, if you have insurance coverage for IV, for infertility, make sure you go to a clinic that has takes your insurance. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a problem. Yeah. So, um, what else? You know, and then you have to make a decision whether you want an academic practice versus a private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, some, but some cities don't have any options at all. They have one place or none at all. So, you know, <laughs> it's kind of your decision to decide if you're going to travel. When I was in Vermont, we had people traveling three hours by car mm-hmm. for every appointment. Yeah. So, you know, but in Dallas, there's like 20 something REIs. Oh, wow. 30 REIs in Dallas, Fort Worth. So, um, yeah. So, 
there's a lot of competition, uh, but you know, in the end, what you want is to make sure you're in a place that you feel comfortable. I think that's the most important mm-hmm. thing because this is a difficult journey. It's stressful. You're spending generally people are spending a lot of money. Um, if you're using a surrogate, I would make sure that you're going to a clinic that does a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Fertility Specialist of Texas, we've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, we've been working with men having babies and using gestational carriers for a very, very long time. There are clinics in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that don't treat the LGBTQ community at all. Oh, wow. So that's definitely something to be looking at. Yeah. So, you know, Wait, as do well they, as if you're going to... How do you know that? Do they put that on their website? Either they have no information on the mm. website or through word of mouth. So if you don't see, like, a rainbow flag on a fertility <laughs> website, uh-huh. like... Everybody who's in a same-sex couple needs fertility. If they want to have kids, they need fertility treatment. Mm. So if there is not something about that on their website, that means that something they're not oriented towards that community. Okay. Which that's a good tip. No. It is what it yeah. is. That's yeah. interesting. So what? This is kind of one of those reality versus expert, you know, versus what people expect kind of things. But what is something like maybe the top one or two things that you know people's reality versus their expectations differ? And what do you wish that they knew going in before they got there that that the that the reality is different than what you 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 tend to see people's expectations i know that's a hard one i would say probably um probably the most people you know today's world people want things right now right and unfortunately we're dealing with Fortunately, unfortunately, mm-hmm. we're dealing with the human body, okay, and the, the reproductive cycle. Fertility testing, fertility workup, fertility treatment is all based upon this kind of month cycle, mm-hmm. right? So the, the timeline is not four days. The timeline is months, mm-hmm. okay? So people have to understand that, yes, we're going to try to make this happen as quickly as possible, but um, if they want, if that's what they want, but that the reality is that this can be a long, stressful process and that everyone's here to help you through that process, but it is going to be a difficult, long process. I'm so happy when my couples come in and they get pregnant the first IUI cycle or something. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I don't lie to my patients. I give them percentages of likelihood of success for every kind of treatment that I offer. Yeah. You know, if you're doing an IUI cycle, most of the time, the highest percent we're going to have is 15 to 20% <gasps> per month. Oh, so low. So it's really low. And people think I'm going to be that 10 to 15%, but 80% of people are not that 20%, right? <laughs> so um, kind of setting expectations that this could take months, I think would be probably the best thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I say that all the time, people. I say, I am not mother nature and I do not have control. Yes. No. <laughs> we, try to, we try to usurp mother nature, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> right? <so. laughs> Yeah. One question. So obviously we work with surrogates frequently. And one question we get is about the complications for being a surrogate. And I would love from the medical perspective for you to talk about that. And if I could just like make one to talk about that we see a lot that I think was surprising is about, I'm going to get this wrong, but SCHs where she'll be in the first trimester and suddenly start bleeding. And it, you know, everyone assumes it's a miscarriage and it's a crisis, but actually it seems to be very common that there's these subchorionic, sub, am I going to get the wrong, whatever we have. Subchorionic, yes, where she's bleeding and actually is fine ultimately. But so can you talk about kind of those things that most people don't know going into it that are. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to first talk, I'm going to first talk about kind of how we choose 
gestational carriers or surrogates, um, kind of the medical criteria for them as well. So, you know, ASRM, our governing body, has very specific guidelines for who should be a gestational carrier. Things like medical history, previous um, previous normal delivery, um, a certain number of C-sections generally, no more than two, sometimes three C-sections prior to being a gestational carrier. Um, and then their medical history, whether they smoke or, you know, et cetera, social kind of history. They have to go through a psychological background check as well as just a regular criminal background check. All those kinds of things are tested. Sexually transmitted infections. Um, all those things are tested for in a gestational carrier. Really what we're looking for is someone who's healthy most of the time in their 30s, sometimes in their 20s, who've had a child before um, and had an easy pregnancy before. That's generally what we're looking for. Um, Risks associated with being a gestational carrier are the risks generally of pregnancy in general. So if you have a history of high blood pressure in, pre in your first pregnancy or uh, preeclampsia or you have big fibroids or you had really complicated C-section, blah, 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 those things all can make a pregnancy that much harder, okay? Um, a twin pregnancy, um, you know, some people want to want to implant two embryos. I'm sure that's a topic that we might discuss yes. later on. But, <laughs> I mean, we can, take, we can um, take a second if you want to deter on. Yeah. Uh, let me, let okay, me finish okay, this okay. first. But, yeah. me, um, but I'll just say to start that twin pregnancies are more complicated than singleton pregnancies. The risk of preterm delivery, the risk of those things like high blood pressure, diabetes, all those things are much higher in um, twin pregnancies. And if a woman's never had a twin pregnancy before, um, you're kind of rolling the dice when it comes to that. But we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Now let's uh, go on to the subchorionic hemorrhage. So um, bleeding in the first trimester is actually very, very common. Um, a subchorionic hemorrhage is when the placenta that is um, attached to the wall of the uterus, a little portion of it pulls away from the side wall of the uterus, causing a little bit of bleeding to happen. Sometimes this causes bleeding that we can't see because um, it's up on the top of the uterus, so it doesn't really affect anything. Sometimes it's down by the cervix, and that's when we see bleeding in pregnancy. Generally, with any bleeding in pregnancy, your infertility doctor is going to want to do an ultrasound to look at that and to track it. Um, most of the time, if there is a heartbeat, uh, you will have a normal pregnancy, but uh, sometimes that can lead to a miscarriage, but most of the time it's not. So is it more common in just general, I'm sorry, and I'm going to, I don't want to bookmark yet, but, but, you know, I see, of course, I'm on all of these Facebook message boards and everybody, you know, of course, the common knowledge is you should be done with your own family because any pregnancy can cause secondary infertility later. But I see a lot of surrogates who are very, or potential gestational carriers who are very concerned that there is a higher risk of um, any kind of risks, problems, complications in surrogate pregnancy. Are do you see that in general? I, I no, I don't see I don't see that at all actually. I, I you know, if you had a if your first or second pregnancy were totally normal and you're a healthy person, it should not affect you in any way besides being pregnant and the effects of being pregnant. Um if you have Another C-section, yes, that makes risks higher for your next pregnancy if you want to get pregnant on your own again. But you know, other things IVF pregnancy, a singleton IVF pregnancy on its own really should not change anything about your likelihood to be able to conceive later or your medical history later. It should not. That's comforting. Yeah, it is good to know. Um, 
Okay, so now we can talk about the big elephant in the room, one that everybody loves to everybody loves to debate single versus I don't know. I feel like it's pretty sad. I feel like I, I, feel, I feel like, like generally it's trending face. in a certain direction, but yeah. I'd be interested to hear your take on this single versus double embryo transfer debate. So this is I don't well, let me ask you what you think is trending. Oh, Where do you think very it's trending? Much oh, single, single embryo. Single only. Nope. Yeah. That's like okay. the the one healthy baby standard. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, whenever I have um, the reason, so the reason why people often will want twins is because, especially if you're using a gestational carrier, is that it is economically. So they they think so it's, it's economically better, but it may not necessarily be. Well, yeah. correct. So they think it's economically <laughs> yeah. better. We'll talk yes. about that. They think it's right. economically better because they only have to go through one uh, gestational carrier cycle to complete their family, right? Um, I always try to convince all of my patients to do a single embryo transfer. Most people who are using a gestational carrier have done genetic testing on their embryos. And with the genetic, the, G, the PGTA that we we're talking about, um, with the PGTA, if it's a genetically normal embryo and you're using it in a surrogate, the likelihood of pregnancy, at least in our clinic, is somewhere in the upper 70 percentile, okay, of having a singleton pregnancy, live birth, Okay. Your chance of twins, if you put in two embryos, is somewhere like 60 to 70% in our clinic. Every clinic is different when it comes to this. But in our clinic, those are the numbers. So they're like, oh, great, we're going to have twins. Perfect. They're so cute and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is that twins, as I was kind of alluding to before, twins are a much, much riskier pregnancy. Natural twins, when a woman either has an embryo that splits or their body produces two eggs and they have fraternal twins that woman's body is kind of almost prepared to carry those twins, right? Because it happened naturally for them. We are putting two embryos into a woman whose body has no idea what's about to happen, right? And so the risks of the biggest risk when it comes to twins is preterm delivery and the sequelae associated with that. So most twins are delivered at or before 36 weeks of pregnancy, Okay. either because they go into labor or they rupture their membranes or um, there's a problem with one of the twins, et cetera, and they're delivered. The risk of C-section is much higher. The risk of the preterm delivery and then having possible complications like cerebral palsy is much higher. Um, the risk of NICU stay and having to be in the NICU for weeks, if not months, is much higher. Um, diabetes high blood pressure in pregnancy, those are all much higher in twin pregnancy. And many of these are not just like a longer NICU say they're lifetime conditions dealing with. Correct. Yeah, like cerebral palsy is a lifetime disability. So, you know, it's difficult because a lot of people are dealing with um, a certain amount of money that they want to spend to have their family. Um, so, you know, with our uh, same-sex male couples who are using a gestational carrier, we will allow for two embryos to be put in with them having a complete kind of understanding and knowledge of everything I just said. Yeah. And I literally say exactly what I just said to them. And we see it from our perspective, um, also bed rest, increased bed rest, which also for the gestational carriers, oh yeah, that absolutely. means you're paying lost wages and yeah. childcare and extra housekeeping mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. these other huge additional yeah. expenses. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's a, but to be honest, if you're looking at it from a percentage point of view, the larger than 50% of those pregnancies will be fine, okay? But 
the percentage that are not going to be fine is much higher than if you did a singleton pregnancy. So you have to kind of look at it that way. Yeah. It's hard to, to take in all those numbers and make a rational decision versus just kind of like what your, your gut says. It's hard to make yeah. that analysis. It's very difficult. Very difficult. But I, you know, I know I've, I've, I have a couple of uh, m- uh, men couples right now that are interested in having two at the same time. And they're just using two gestational carriers at once because they don't want the risk, which is very safe. <laughs> so good for them for that. But. And that has its own other issues. Yeah, we see ethical issues. Responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To them and the relationship with each of them and being at the birth at the same time, you're split. Um, but yeah. Uh, so this is kind of more of a funny question, but uh, I do feel like a lot of our intended mothers, like they kind of, there's like more of an emotional burden of infertility where women kind of get the blame still, even though that's not the statistics. Can you kind of talk to that, that it's not, it's, it's the men's fault too. Not just the girl, it's not just the women's fault. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So I, so, you know, as I said before, I majored in psychology in college. I talk about this with every single patient that I see every day. So there's a lot of emotional aspects to infertility. Women and men deal with infertility extremely differently. Women blame themselves. It's not just that people are blaming them. They blame themselves always, even if they have no idea what's going on. And then men, they just want to fix things, right? So they think <laughs> not about their fault. very differently. Like, what, what? No, it's not about fault. It's about how can we fix this, right? So women deal with this much more in a, on a, on a like reflective sense, and men deal with it in a much more kind of active sense. Mm. Um, and it is no one's fault. I always tell them, even if I find that your tubes are blocked, it's not your fault that your tubes are blocked. Right. Like something that you did, like infertility is infertility. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it is what it is and we're going to work with it. And there's no, there's nothing productive in kind of beating yourself up over whatever. Nobody blames right? me because Our I need my to kind of, you know, at such a young age. You exactly. Know? Yeah. We just kind of, we, we work together to get through whatever it is. And I always tell my patients, because I've seen so many couples also fall apart over it. Mm. Just fall apart, divorces, mm. etc. I say to patients, there's no reason for that to happen. Like if you guys talk to each other, you talk about what your goals are, how aggressive you want to be with treatment, what, like, what, a good outcome is to you as a couple, there's no reason for there to be any, any like kind of problems in the relationship. But a lot of couples, they don't talk about these kind of things. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, thought, I just want to give a shout out for you. That's amazing that because you have that psychological background that you can really speak to that. Cause I think it's just such a big part that most, you know, many doctors don't have that bedside manner and can't talk to those emotions that people are going through. Yeah. You know, it's something that I think is really important because you you often have patients who drop out of treatment because it's too emotionally taxing for them, right? And we, that's one of the big things that we deal with in uh, infertility practices in general is maintaining patients because it's such an emotionally taxing thing. So my goal is always to make it as easy for the patient as possible, for the patients as possible, and to be as supportive as possible. Um, some larger clinics around the country actually have an in-house psychologist that works with patients as well. Um, and then there's alternative treatments like um, acupuncture, massage, et cetera, um, that have varying kind of scientific uh, backing, but um, that are really just helping to help the whole body and mind of the patient mm-hmm. as well. Do you personally, when there's a negative pregnancy test after treatment and this whole emotional cycle, do you personally make those phone calls? 
It depends. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You know, my nurses are amazing and they are talking with actually they talk to my patients more than Mm -hmm. I do, um, which is true in most fertility practices is that the day-to-day kind of calling the patient, this is your new medication dose for your IVF medication (laughs) is with the nurse. That I will admit is my biggest piece of advice uh, when people are selecting a clinic is to talk to the nurses and make sure you like the nurses. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's really, really important. If if you talk to the nurses, you Right, because you talk to them most of the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, you don't. They don't call you back, or it takes a long time to get back. If they're accessible, that's super important. Like, but you know, some patients who I have a very special connection with, or you know, I will call myself. I, I also try to take that burden off of my off of my nurses sometimes because it's not fair to have them call all the negative results, and I only get to call. Yeah, the you do the positive, right? So, yeah. <laughs> definitely, you take that. So. We definitely try to, you know, we definitely try to um, share that burden as well as that oh, mm-hmm. happy moment together with our patients. So, you know, otherwise everyone, you know, no one's happy with their job. You know, I, I view this as a job, but also as a calling, but it's like, you know, you have to be like what you do. And if all my nurse was doing was calling oh, a pregnancy test, yeah. all day, that would be a terrible <laughs> job. I do not want her job. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this has been really informative, really helpful. Did, is there any kind of like burning tip or thought you want to get out there for, for patients or gestational carriers before we kind of close? I would say the most important thing is not to be afraid of looking for care. Most people, that first step of getting care, of asking the question, looking for care is the hardest one. People do not want to ed- kind of admit to themselves that there's an issue, but unfortunately with fertility issues in general, Time does matter. Okay. So, um, getting that initial care, I think over the course of the last 10 years with Facebook, et cetera, podcasts like this, the kind of mystique and negative view of infertility is, you know, as you said, the woman's fault, et cetera, is kind of that veil is being lifted. Yay. Um, we're, do- we're doing our part, way, <laughs> which is great. Yes. Um, but it's still there for most people. They view it as like a shameful thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of at all. And there's a whole community and group of doctors, nurses, medical assistants who are there to help you and to make sure that we can hopefully get you pregnant is the goal in the end. Um, so don't be afraid, you know, we're here for you and we're here to help you. Fantastic advice. That's a perfect. Thank you, Dr. Scora. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Scora, for joining us. We know that your time is incredibly valuable and that insurance is valuing it and people pay out of pocket and you just gave us all that that time and expertise for free. So we are incredibly grateful. And it was fun too. Like seriously, it was really good information and I am striving every day to use the new terminology and I can't quite make it happen. But every time I hear somebody use the right terminology now, I go, oh, Dr. Score taught me that and I should be better about doing that. So I'm still yeah. stuck. Like PGD. Oh, no, not that. You got to come I up know. With the, we'll get the there. Terms. We'll yes. get there. But so thank you to Dr. Scora. Also a big thank you to Chris at Work at Bird Studios for all of his great work on the audio for this podcast, as well as to Lindsay and Amanda who do so much work in being able to disseminate this to the world and have visuals and um, make it more appealing and user-friendly. Thank you all. And thank you all for listening. We really appreciate that you're all out there. So thanks so much. Bye.